within like a 10 day time frame, everything dried up. It was like the Sahara Desert. And the reason being was, guess what? We'll talk to you in two and a half years, but we need to figure out what's going to happen with healthcare. Because depending on who gets elected, there's going to be a lot of regulation and a lot of change. And we don't know what we don't know. And then on the flip side, it was, oh, and by the way, we're also tied to the autos. And if they collapse, we collapse too. So yeah, that sucked. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Amy Volus. She's the founder and CEO of Avenue Talent Partners. And in this episode, I talk with Amy about two main topics. First, we dig into the state of B2B sales recruiting and hiring. And we explore what Amy calls the three myths of hiring enterprise sales candidates. And then we dig into the continuing lack of diversity in B2B sales And as we all know, this is not a pretty picture. And we dig into the research that has shown the value of diversity in the workplace. You know, with findings that companies that are considered leaders in building diverse workforces are generating above average business returns in their industry. So, you know, it's not just a matter of of how you're building diversity. It's there's some really good rationale for doing it. So you want to stick around because this is another important conversation. Before you get to Amy, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Amy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Andy, for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, good. We're excited to have you here. So where are you joining us from? I'm joining you from northern Michigan on a lake where we have a place for the summer. So greetings from the country. From the country. Yes. So... Like, are are you on the Upper Peninsula or not that far? No, um, I'm about an hour and a half south of where the Mackinac Bridge is. So, Northwest Michigan. Yeah. So, mosquitoes haven't carried you away yet? No, thank goodness. They have not. I have like a little Kumbaya essential oil situation that I use and they stay away from that. So, there you go. And And how about the black flies? Do you get those up there too? No, we're on the side of the lake that um, the flies don't come our way. I mean, they do every now and then, but no, I don't have a major situation. Thank goodness. <laughs> for those of us, for those of you who aren't from the Midwest or the Upper Midwest, as I is from and Amy is, um, yeah, you get that far north, the flies can be an issue. They can ruin. They can ruin a good time. That's true. Or if you go to Maine, they can be really bad there too. So yeah, yeah. So where do you normally hang out? I normally hang out in Grand Rapids, Michigan. That's my that's my normal abode. And uh, every summer we come up here, we, we have a place up here. And I'm originally from Chicago, and that's why we went to Grand Rapids, was to get closer to this. It was either Grand Rapids or it was California. And then we realized <laughs> California's... <laughs> California is farther away from northern Michigan, yes. It, it is. That's That was the decision maker. Between that and my mother having yet to cut the umbilical cord, the cord was um, not as tight going from Chicago to Grand Rapids than Chicago to California. So there you go. Got it. So mom wanted you to stay close. Uh, I think both families were both from Chicago. And uh, they thought when we were first talking about it, and we love California and we go there and we sometimes in the, the winter we'll rent 
a place there for a number of weeks. And when we started doing that, it was like family therapy, like the waterworks, the <laughs> we're aging, you can't leave us. There's only so much time left. And it pulled oh, my heart, my heart. I feel my heart. Yeah. 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 So it's like, okay, well, you did give me life. So, you know, I won't go that far away. Well, you saved a lot of money not going to California. True story. That's true. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but maybe now with people sheltering in place, I can get a better deal. I don't know. We'll see. Oh, with your, if you want to rent out here, I'm sure. Rent or if we ever wanted to buy like in the city or something, I don't know. I'm not sure. So you mean the city meaning San Francisco? Uh, any of the city, San Francisco, LA, um, San, Di- San Diego, San Diego, as the legend Ron Burgundy would say. Yes, that's right. <laughs> all of those. Yes. Those are all options that we love. Got it. All right. Well, I can recommend San Diego for sure. Yes, please. Yeah. You have to, you have to come rent out in the area sometime. Um, yes, please. That's going to be a different conversation for a different day. And we are okay. have a conversation to talk about book writing. I'm going to have to add that into our agenda. Okay. All right. We'll do that. Thank you. All right. So, so you've been in recruiting mostly your entire career with, it seems like a short break at one point, but, um, so what, what was it that was exciting to you about recruiting? Actually, um, I was in that industry, but I wasn't a recruiter. Oh, okay. Um, I have been in sales my entire career and it so happened to be inside the HR tech recruiting talent acquisition stratosphere. So uh, you're, you're on the right track, but just a little bit of a different spin in terms Mm -hmm. of the industry was that, but the work was all sales. So what were you selling? So depending, I've done a a lot of different things and, and actually I just lied to you a little bit. My first job. Oh, that's good. That's a good way to build a relationship of trust. I know. You know what? Um, Let's start lying. This is what you should always do in sales and recruiting. Just lie to people and it'll work itself yeah. out in the end. Do not right. do that, by the way. That's me being cheeky. Um, no, I actually started out as a tech recruiter way back in the day. And it was for a company that was providing on-site um, technical talent for the telecommunications industry. Mm-hmm. And that company was based in Denver. They had a satellite office in Chicago. Loved it. I have no idea how I even was a technical recruiter. Like, I, I have no idea. Like, I was probably everything that I preach today about what's broken in recruiting. <laughs> okay, because when you started, you were neither technical nor a recruiter. This is this is a true story. So yes. um, the 9-11 situation sadly happened, and the dot-com bubble uh, had a little bit of a burst. And mm-hmm. I remember I had survived a bunch of layoffs and the CEO who I absolutely adored and the team adored sat me down one day and he's like, look, as you can tell, we have nothing for you to recruit for. Uh, we've laid off a bunch of people. And if you want to stick around, you're going to have to get into sales. And so that was many, many moons ago. And that's where I got into sales. So at that point I was selling, um, outsourced technical solutions to the telecommunications industry. Uh, and sadly, by the time I got into it, it was uh, too late and the company folded. And then I got into um, a company called Data Trend, or excuse me, that was Data Trend. I got into a company called Jacobson that was 
a blend of outsourcing consulting and staffing for a very, very specialized niche in managed care. And that's really where I got my groove in terms of uh, my sales career. And then I got into the HR tech space. So, Well, so at, at Jacobson, who are you selling to that you got into your groove? Managed care organizations at the C-level, the COO, um, mostly operational. Sorry, I don't know if you can hear that background noise. My neighbor's deciding to do something with a saw. Um, <laughs> you know, timing. Uh, so we were selling, at, without getting too technical, think about like Anthem and WellPoint and in, Cigna in, uh, and Aetna and mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. that. They have software. And when they go through a new software implementation, this was a big driver of demand at the time. I don't know what they're doing now, but at the time they were going through implementations and when they would do that, if they didn't do it well and nine times out of 10, it would never go well, they would get into major backlog situations. And if they were in a major backlog situation, they could get fined by the government really, really, really fined. And so that's what we were solving for was if you're in that hump, and you need just-in-time solutions in terms of having people that have done the job, that know the system, that understand the technology, can immediately step in and start working to reduce the the backlog, that's what we did. And so the people that I was dealing with, they were either the COO, uh, the SVP of operations, the SVP of claim. Um, Those were were my buyers at the time. And so what was it about that you said you... You hit your groove, hit your hit your. You're in a flow state. Um, what was what was it? So I had a phenomenal boss that took a chance on me, and I will never forget. At the time, this was again after nine eleven, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I remember when I was interviewing, and they were like, "Yeah, so we think that this could be an interesting solution." There is a competitor that just was bought by Perot Systems, but. We haven't heard a lot about them, but this could be big, but we need somebody that is going to validate the market, essentially. And my boss had stepped into the company um, out of consulting, and he was there through the succession plan of a father retiring and two sons taking over as Mm co-CEOs. And um, yeah, his name is Darren. And it was like kismet and he was everything that I wasn't and vice versa. And he was a tremendous mentor to help me think critically, to help me understand what it really looked like to have a seat at that kind of table. And one of my biggest deals was inside of that company, uh, well into the six figures and Mm -hmm. bringing together two companies through a big merger. And at the time it was like a historical merger and it was myself and two COOs and their two, um, there are two managed consulting firms and I did that deal and I could have never done that had it not been for him. So that's, that's what it was. So in addition to thinking critically, what, what other sort of big lessons do you think you learned from him? Um, so many, but I, I really think it was about thinking critically. He has a unique skill set where he can see something today and be mm-hmm. able to look at that something and think through what needs to happen between now and and the next 12 months and the plan that needs to happen and be right. And I've not really come across a lot of people that can do that well or accurately. And he taught me how to think about that. Like not just what you want now, not just what you need now, not just what 
is on your agenda, but think critically through what the situation is and what the buyer really needs and what they're going through and immerse yourself in the industry and listen more than you talk, like all of that stuff when it comes to seeking to understand and and thinking critically was really where I fine tuned sort of my craft at that point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure it's improved since then. So what was, what was following that then? So take us to how you got to starting your own company from where you were at Jacobson. Yeah. So from there then, um, I got into the HR tech space. So the first company that I stepped into from that was Yahoo Hot Jobs. And um, okay. a cool opportunity because you had this big brand behind you, Yahoo. And um, then you had the recruiting piece that I understood because I had spent time in the recruiting mo- motion from the work that I had mm-hmm. done. And mm-hmm. so it was interesting to flip the script on that, to think about it from a recruitment advertising perspective and dealing with CHROs, SVPs of talent acquisition, VPs of talent acquisition, VPs of recruiting. That was my buyer for Fortune Brands. So I was on the majors team and that's basically like jumbo accounts, global accounts, uh, enterprise, like heavy duty enterprise sales. Mm. And my role was 35 to like 40-ish accounts and a blend of existing, new, and uh, win back. And so the work inside of that was different with each account, depending on what the situation was. But what I liked about it, I had never uh, been on the more technical side and it wasn't SaaS. That wasn't SaaS then. It was more like digital advertising, Mm -hmm. talking a lot about how things were structured from a recruiting perspective of, well, wait, are you thinking about branding? Are, how are you managing this? What technology are you using to manage this? And again, that multi-threaded complex sale. So I, that's where I was bitten more by the tech side of things. And uh, the, that side of the recruiting industry was fascinating to me. And it's always been the number one problem that my buyers have had, whether it's the work that I'm doing today or whether it's, what I did way back in the day, we don't have a problem talking to people or seeing people or finding people. We have a problem finding the right people to do the right work and to stick around to do that work. And so that's not been lost on me. And that's the common theme through my career is trying to solve those problems through the services or the products or the solutions that I've been able to sell. Right. So then what was the impetus to say, yeah, I could do this better. Let me start my own company. Uh, well, Darren comes back around, right? Okay. So, <laughs> so Darren and I never fell out of touch. Um, and he he has always been a mentor of mine. And so he and I spent a lot of time talking. And I remember when we both left, left uh, Jacobson at the same time, when we left, it was sad. I was really sad to not continue to work with him. And I think he felt the same way. And we always talked about like, well, what if we were to join forces again? And I I should go back to Jacobson. Within my career there, I also got into sales leadership and I was um, a vice president by the time I had left. So Mm -hmm. I realized though, uh, I loved being where the action was with my buyer and I loved leadership, but I didn't always want to do it for everybody else, if that made sense. Um, Yeah. 
And so Darren and I kept in touch. I loved what I was doing at Yahoo. It was a special time with special people. I did some great work there. I had some great deals. Certainly proud of the work. Learned a lot of new stuff. And I couldn't shake Darren. (laughs) We were talking and it was, I come from a long line of entrepreneurs and sales folk. And I feel like it's in my DNA to do my own thing. And so we had gotten together. He had flown to Chicago. We were living in Chicago at the time. Uh, We had a lot of meetings about wanting to go back to what we had done at Jacobson and wanting to do it better because there were certain limitations that we had and certain um, things that I think the executive team there, they weren't really interested in pursuing that we were, that we were hearing from our buyer. And so the time was right. And Darren and I both equally invested in the company and started Broadpath, which is still a company to this day. That was in 2008. Um, 2008 was 2008. So Uh (laughs) that's an election year. And that election year, not only was the economy breaking apart, but the big themes at that time were around the autos and the collapse of the autos. And, um, the Bear Stearns of the world and the Bernie Madoffs of the world. And Mm -hmm. at the same time, it was also about healthcare. And remember, we were focusing on managed care organizations. Right. I went from having a seven-figure pipeline of clients that were so happy to have Darren and I back. Um, And I remember it was like, I was at like almost closed one, right? Like it was like, I'm at 90% assurance that this thing is going to to be a done deal. And within like a 10 day time frame, everything dried up. It was like the Sahara desert. And the reason being was, guess what? We'll talk to you in two and a half years, but we need to figure out what's going to happen with healthcare because depending on who gets elected, there's going to be a lot of regulation and a lot of change. And we don't know what we don't right. know. And then mm-hmm. on the flip side, it was, Oh, and by the way, we're also tied to the autos. And if they collapse, we collapse too. So, yeah, that sucked. (laughs) And um, I will never forget, I was in a Home Depot parking lot and not Home Depot, excuse me, Office Depot parking lot. And I called Darren and we had had lots of conversations, but I was crying and I was like, I can't do this anymore. And I couldn't do it anymore because we and I still believe in bootstrapping versus taking on outside funding. Right. Personally, for a variety of reasons. And he felt the same way. And I said, you know, I, this is straining my personal relationships. This is straining my financial situation. And I, I don't have the wherewithal to not do anything for two and a half years in this business, like in terms of, of the economics. And even Darren was questioning it. And Darren's financial situation and where he was living and what he was doing is very different than mine. And I'm so proud of him. I stepped away. That was the hardest thing I had to do. I'm really proud of the fact that even though I stepped away, we are still good. We were still good. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really hard to do. And um, he stuck with it and sacrificed so much. And flash forward to 12 years later, and that company is absolutely thriving. And I'm thrilled for him. So that's that. When did you start your company? Avenue Talent Partner. So, so okay, 2008 happens. That was a sad day. I had to eat crow and go back to Yahoo. That that was amazing, and I'm grateful. And thank you for bringing me back, Yahoo executive team. <laughs> um, 
but I also knew that it was a bridge and I needed to just sort of like get my breath back again and get my feet underneath me and start thinking through like, okay, I've got to recover and I want to just get back to being the best version of me, which is a catalyst. They, they were a great catalyst for that. Mm-hmm. There was a little company at the time called Indeed that was giving like the Yahoo's right. and the career builders and the monsters a run for their money. And one of our executives went over from Yahoo to Indeed and recruited me over to be the first, the first enterprise salesperson to build out a territory. And again, I have this common theme of being a guinea pig. I love the build. That's my, Mm -hmm. and as Mm -hmm. much as I loved Yahoo, Yahoo wasn't building anything. Um, And so the work is different. And so I like being where the action is. I like building. I like being close to my customer. I like being able to do things on their behalf that make them better without a lot of the red tape and, and bureaucracy. So long story short, uh, they recruited me and here I was the very first person that they hired to do this, but also I was remote. They were all in Stanford, Connecticut. Their tech team was in Austin. And here is this, this person that's in Chicago. And, uh, yeah, I was employee number 20 something and was there through a significant exit. So that's my startup kind of moment of awesomeness because when you go through that and the fruits of your labor and the work was hard, they didn't advertise, we didn't have a fully baked out anything. Right. Um, and you go through that and it builds into something and then there's an exit like that. That's like the most amazing feeling ever. And that's where I was bitten. And then you start chasing that like a drug. And that's yeah. what I did. So why did I Avenue Talent Partners, um, because I knew I was always going to do a company for myself and I wanted it to be very different. And no offense to Darren, I didn't want a partner. I wanted to do it for me. And so I think people start businesses for one of two reasons. You've been in a space for a long time and you understand it and you care about it and you've identified opportunities to make it better or bridge gaps or solve problems there. Or you are brilliant and you're going to be like the dude from Uber and you start thinking about, huh, I'm in Paris and I'd like to get a car like yesterday without a taxi. And all of a sudden there's this on-demand space that's created or Steve Jobs with <laughs> what happened at Apple. I'm not that person. My brain is is not wired that way, but I am someone that cares deeply about my community. And so the whole HR tech and talent and recruiting piece and what's broken there uh, really speaks to me. Startups really speak to me. Sales really speaks to me. And I figured, huh, I get hit up by recruiters all the time, internal and external. And it's always an icky situation. I've never had an amazing <laughs> scenario. Why, why, why do you think that is? Because I think that they preach it, preach it. I think that they approach it. Sorry. The same way that the majority of sellers do of I'm going to spray and pray. It's a numbers game. Uh, quantity over quality, all that same nonsense happens in recruiting. And the last time I checked, these are still one-to-one relationships. And when you don't treat them as such, it's just this like highly transactional ickiness that you have high churn probability and it happens. Um, and I cared about a lot. I cared a lot about that in sales and I still do. And I care a lot about that in recruiting and still do. And so that's why I started this. Hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. So you say you're doing sales recruiting without the cringe. So the cringe was what you you spoke about before, just the what you called icky yes. ickiness. Yes. And how's that going? Um, I'm almost afraid to say it out loud because of the time that we're in. 
Um, and I, I'm superstitious. I'm really grateful to say it's going really well. Um, and I'm really proud of that. And it's been a lot of hard work, but I have cracked the code for how to solve for the problems that I see that happen when it comes to sales recruiting specifically. And and I should say this, I don't do all sales recruiting. It's enterprise sales, sales leadership, and executive sales Mm -hmm. leadership. So that's Mm -hmm. what I mean by that. Mm -hmm. Um, I have cracked the code for how to reduce the margin for error when it comes to mishiring and when it comes to reducing turnover, because our industry turns almost three times more than anything else. And that's a big problem. And so. Well, you said you cracked the code, but. I have. In terms of, but, yeah, you know, it's your clients who are making the decision. Yep. But for my clients to work with me, they have to subscribe to the way that I work. So I, okay, I take so, orders. Like, it's not like, oh, you have a job? Great. Give it to me and let me just go uh, blast out a thousand different in-mails or emails. And I've got a network and these are the top 10 people that I work with and that's it. Like. No, no, it's not that at all for me. So tell us how you approach that when you get a, an assignment. I'm going to keep it a little high level because some of this sure. is secret sauce. <laughs> so, sure, sure. So I will say this. Um, everything that I do is the exact same thing that I did in my enterprise sales career that made me successful. And the backdrop of that was to seek to understand and really peel back the layers beyond the surface of what do you really need? Why do you really need it? Why now? What's your real stage in the work that needs to be done? Um, I'm a big fan of a scorecard. I write about that all the time. That's absolutely mm-hmm. incorporated into my process. And then there is an interview motion that I have created uh, to reduce that margin for error. A lot of the time, I think what people do is they recruit on the fly and they try to figure it out along the way, and they still have no idea what they're really looking for or what good really looks like for them in their stage. And so if, if, a, if I understand what you're saying, so when a client hires you, they have to agree to use your scorecard. Um, it, it's much deeper than that, but yeah, that's certainly part of it. So interesting. I mean, I'm a, you and I have spoken before about this. I'm a huge believer in scorecard approach to a data-based approach to, to hiring. Um, because we're collecting all this this data, if we set the right criteria, then we should be able to track that over time and see how that what we could do better going forward. Yeah, well, and I think with anything, it's like go back and especially with a scorecard, what scorecard you might have used a year ago as your company, especially in the startup ecosystem, might be very different than where you are today. And so I like to allow enough time to kind of settle in and have enough mm-hmm. to look at, but the scorecard's going to evolve as your company evolves. And so this is, this is something that um, out of everything that Jason Lemkin has talked about, and I don't agree with every single thing that he has talked about, but I do absolutely embrace this and agree wholeheartedly. There are 48 different kinds of sales leaders you better make sure you hire the right one for your stage and the work that you need to do. And that's an article that he's written. And I think it's absolutely spot on. And what most people don't realize, especially people that aren't used to, or it doesn't come naturally, or they haven't done it before, i.e. and no knock on them. Um, but like a technical founder, for example, 
doesn't know how to hire a sales leader. They haven't done the job. They don't know the questions to ask and they don't know the answers if they are good or not. They don't know how to um, process that, so to speak. It would be like if you asked me, and even though I was a tech recruiter back in the day, I contributed to everything that was icky because I didn't know if somebody was good or not. I was just checking off boxes. Mm -hmm. And it's one thing to check off a box and it's a very different thing when you can quantify and qualify and, and put those pieces together to connect the dots. Most don't know how to do that. So they'll get caught up in the shiny objects or, oh, I was referred to this person. This person is this you know, VP of sales over here and they're, they've done a great job and they've grown the business 3x. Well, what that business was doing and how and how it was structured internally and the work that needed to be done may or may not apply to what you need. And do you know what that even looks like? And nine times out of 10, the answer is no. And so that's really the stuff that gets me up in the morning to think about and to to solve. Yeah, I mean, a lot of, of what happens is, especially in early stage startups, is to your point is you know founders oftentimes just want to shed the responsibility of actually having to sell, and they may hire a VP way too early, and the VP doesn't want to get their hands dirty either, so they hire somebody else, <laughs> and, he's, and it's like, well, no one's ever sold yet. Right, you have to learn how to sell your product before you start bringing these people in. Um, that, and even if you, if you're not entirely sure how to sell it, you have to spend time with your buyer to understand them. Because if you're going to continue to be brilliant, which you are, and that's great, to continue to iterate. And when you're thinking about your MVP and you're thinking about additional features or whatever the case may be, if you're just shooting in the dark because you think it's great and because your little circle of people around you tell you how great it is, but your buyer hasn't told you that and you haven't spent time with them and you're making major assumptions mm-hmm. and then you want to hire a team to validate the market. That's insanity to me. Like that literally is such an expensive roll of the dice that tends to not work out so well. I want to know what my buyer wants, needs, what they don't want, what they cringe over, what they, what delights them, what makes them better. And I'm a big believer, and this is the same thing with recruiting. People make decisions in the buying motion or in the hiring motion for three reasons. You can help me get better. You can help me solve a problem. You can help me reach a goal. And if you don't know the answer to that and you're assuming because you think that what you're creating is the most brilliant thing since sliced bread, that's great. But the market will always speak loudest. And wouldn't you rather know up front than wait until way down the road and have your rear end handed to you because you made the wrong assumptions and now you've brought people in and that's disrupted their careers and the work that they've done and you've spent a bunch of money on that. Oh, and if we're talking about enterprise sales, you really truly only get one major shot at that table. And if you screw it up, and you colossally screw it up because that's a multi-threaded sales motion, good luck trying to get back in. Mm -hmm. I find that people think through the big picture. They get like caught up in the hastiness of like right now, like this is what we're doing right now. And it's like, okay. And so I guess to go back to what you were asking me about Darren in terms of like how he influenced me right now is great, but right now is right now. There's this whole other thing that's going to happen after right now. And are we thinking about that? And how are we thinking about that? And that's the stuff. And so there are also 
back to right before the the Darren comment, you're talking about you know hiring the right people and so on. Is is there still seems to be this this fundamental mismatch between the way companies think about who they need to hire and the attributes they need to have, and to a point you're making about talking to the buyers, what the buyers need from that person in order to help them make a decision. And this this seems to be persistent, right? It's like how do we break how do we break that cycle of, you know, on one hand we need, and, you know, I've, just in the last couple of weeks, you know, see job listings for you need a hunter, you need a extrovert, you need a blah blah these you know sort of macho <laughs> terms, yeah. and then what the customer wants is well, I want a curious, open minded problem solver, but you're not hiring that person, you're hiring this other animal, which you know does nothing for me. I want an assassin. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that is like old antiquated, like archaic, grotesque sales culture stuff. Truly. But it's, it's still predominant. It is. Well, 78.3% of the sales population are white males. So yeah, of course. Um, and it starts at the top, right? So this is why. I care so deeply. One of the reasons why, I mean, there's lots of reasons why I care deeply, but this is one of the reasons that I care deeply about what the work that I do when it comes to hiring a sales leader, because Mm -hmm. I am a technical founder and I don't know that I am trained because I read something on some blog that said, this is what you do when you hire a VP and it isn't applicable to your stage. And maybe there's one little baby piece of advice out of that whole thing that you read but now you're using that as the be all and end all because it's how you sass. Like that is insane to me. Um, and so in my mind, the way to solve for that, and, and I am, I am grateful for the work that I do, but I am trying to shake up an industry that's begging for it. And it starts at the top and it starts with the hiring motion. And in my mind, it's like, okay, I know what that looks like. I vet my clients just as much as I would vet anybody I'd bring their way. And if it's going to be that, it's like, we need a ninja and we need a this and we need a that and blah, blah, blah. And um, there's all of that sort of like peacocking pomp and circumstance, like pounding of the chest. And it's like Grant Cardone style stuff. No, thanks. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not into it. And no knock on Grant Cardone. I'm just not a fan. It's not my style. It's not my jam. Right. Yeah, me neither. Well, so Let's follow down that the path a little bit because you know one of the things that that you've written about and you talk about is is increasing the diversity in sales. Yeah. And so, how are you able to influence that with with your clients? Because, as you said, as I actually I think as I was reading somewhere and maybe even something you'd written, about, yeah, seventy eight percent of people working in sales are white. Uh, big fraction of those men. Uh, yeah. How do you how do you work with your clients to say? You know, we're missing out on all these opportunities, these talented people we're just not even looking at. So I tend to not be the problem solver at my level. Because remember, the work that I do is hiring a sales leader that has a lot of experience or an enterprise seller that has a lot of experience. And so the pool of available people that do the actual job fall into that statistic that you just stated that I talked about earlier. So mm-hmm. I can't fix it at my level. I can talk about it for sure. Well, I was talking more how you influence it. I, that's 
it's influence and it's education. And so in my mind, as an industry, we have done a colossal job of um, bringing people into sales and quickly ushering them out because of the way we've treated them. So colossally bad job. Yeah, thank you. Um, <laughs> okay, yes. Thank you. Um, this soft situation next to me is throwing my brain off. I'm sorry. I want to like literally push pause and go over there and take the saw and put it in the lake, but I digress. Uh, but no, we've done a, we've done a horrible job of keeping great people in sales that had a lot of promise because there's a lack of onboarding. There's a lack of, of training. There's a lack of enablement. And if you don't fit the norm, you don't fit and you're out. Or if it's a horrible sales leader and that's the first person's experience in sales, they're super turned off and they're going to go elsewhere. And that's a mm-hmm. real shame. And so I'm trying to influence. It starts well before this hiring motion. How can we bring yes. people in? How can we keep them? How can we support them? And as an executive, how are you creating a feeder system inside of your sales ecosystem to have a path and to have it be a nurturing path and to have it not be you walk onto the sales floor and the only thing that you hear is uh, talking about Monday night football that might alienate every other underrepresented group. And that's okay. Like if that happens, that's okay. And if you know that it happens, that's okay. Now, you know, what are we going to do about it? And I had a conversation with a founder and he was like, I can't tell people what to say when I walk in in the morning, all they're doing is talking about going and getting drunk at the bar or the conquests that they made from the bar or some sort of sports thing. And we have three women that are in customer success that would be phenomenal in sales and they don't want anything to do with it because they don't want to deal with that. Right. And I said, so what are you doing about that? And he's like, I can't do anything. I can't tell people what to say. And I said, no, 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 you can't. But at the end of the day, what you can do is this. If you're hearing it firsthand, it means that you're somewhere on the sales floor. You're walking, you're around it, you're near it. As a leader, you can change the discussion. You can create chatter to be more inclusive. You can quickly reframe it and you can have discussion about what's appropriate and what's not. That starts at the top. And it was insane, Andy, because it was like, you know what? You're right. I've never thought about that before. And what I've learned is sometimes what's obvious to me isn't always obvious to others, but like, it doesn't have to be a complete colossal reframe of everything that you've ever thought about doing. It can simply be change the conversation, spend more time on the sales floor, have boundaries of what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. Because I'll tell you, a lot of the stuff that happens isn't going to be attractive to a woman, a person of color, someone out of the LGBTQ community, you know, and the list goes on. Or we also have the other side to this and diversity. Isn't just a person of color or, or women. It's a lot of different things. And a big thing that nobody's talking about. And I think it's absolutely horrible is there's some sort of stigma that after the age of 40, you're put out to pasture and you don't have really any light left in you and you're not going to bring any value to the table, especially yeah. in startups. Like that's a big problem, big problem. 
Yeah, yeah. There's there's explicit ageism as well as as everything else. I mean, it's for me a lot of it is you know just minuscule amounts of courage on the part of founders and sales leaders could begin to address this issue in a meaningful way. Is is I think that that you know the fear starts as well. I can't do anything that would possibly disrupt this quote unquote culture we have because we're producing and the investors are expecting this invest you know uh certain results within certain time frames mm-hmm. and it sort of works its way down the ladder where suddenly people say well i'm gonna make this quote-unquote safe hire um and it's yeah for most companies it's not working out yet they're all locked in well and, and there's something that i read recently and i i can't quote it because i don't i'm reading a lot on the topic so i don't have it right in front of me. I have it saved somewhere, but it's the thought of, and, and there's statistics. I think McKinsey had a study about this. Like when you have a diverse group of people, your success ratio or number, whatever you want to say increases, you know? So like, and, and that's not lost on me. So if I think about it, if, if all I'm doing is hiring everyone that, thinks like me, mm-hmm. has worked like me, looks like me, talks like me, does it the exact same way that I do it, you're missing out on such an opportunity to think broadly, to think outside of yourself, to learn something, um, and to do such a better business in my mind. And so that's the stuff that it's like, that's really the benefit of diversity and somehow people are really threatened by that. And it is a systemic problem. It's not just, you you mentioned something earlier and I think it's important. I can lead the horse to water, but ultimately it's somebody else's decision to make. And so it starts where the decision is made and culture comes from every single decision that's been made to that point and is, it will continue to be influenced and affected and enabled by every decision that happens after that point. And so like, what are you deciding to do people? Like, it's not just something that you just, I can't tell you after all the stuff that's been happening, how many times I get on a call and it's like, okay, so we want to hire for diversity. They don't even know what that means. Mm -hmm. They don't even know what that looks like. Truly. They're not thinking about it broadly of like, okay, you want to do that. But the story that you're telling on your website speaks to the opposite of that. Your glass door reviews are horrendous and talk about the bro culture. How are you addressing that? Well, no, no, no. We just want to recruit for it. And it's like, no, (laughs) it's not that simple. But I think this gets, this gets back to the whole idea of, of people sort of driven by, I call it fear, but it could be their, their desire to, to please or whatever. But you know, it's just an article in the Washington Post. I think it was this morning, the last couple of days, about you know, less than one percent of venture capital money goes to black entrepreneurs. Yeah. So uh, you have to think to some degree. There's you know both explicit and implicit biases at at work in those decisions, but you also it's reasonable to expect that a founder that gets funded and sees this is is like, well, okay, if they're not comfortable funding black entrepreneurs, can I hire talented black or whatever employees or am I going to risk raising, you know, risk the wrath of my investors? You know, it's just like, you know, I should, the safe thing is to follow what's been done. Yeah. 
And it's 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 like, okay, well, we've got a real cycle we got to break out of. And it's unfortunately what you're talking about when your clients are calling you. There was a, I think it was a different interview, but uh, one of the few black partners in VC firms in the Valley saying that, yeah, tired of this diversity theater. And I think that's, you know, just what you're experiencing is somebody calling you and said, yeah, we just want to recruit for it. That's, that's theater, right? They're not, no intent to actually make it real. It's just our, our play acting. Well, and then that speaks to, is there a true desire to change it? And, and is it, is it just the trendy topic or is there a real commitment to that? Um, and, and that's, that's what I look for. And it's funny, I, the, the stat that you're quoting from something that you're reading that I wrote within that same article, uh, there is a company called Suchi and I used their website video. Like anybody can go see it as a perfect example of what diversity looks like of walking your talk, not just saying that you care about it. Um, it, it, it's pretty powerful to see it in practice and you don't see it so much. And they have done a phenomenal job of illustrating that. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, when I'm going to speak so strongly about something like this, I think sometimes people just feel paralyzed, you know, so the benefit of the doubt of people and not just the theater of, of diversity, but like if you genuinely care and you just genuinely don't know, or you're so bogged down in your own business, it's hard to think about your business. Um, that's where I try to provide examples and actionable insight that people can start doing. So whether it's how you think about your job descriptions and they're just from a gender perspective, there's a free gender decoder tool that you can use. And there's companies like Textio and Tap Recruit um, that are paid solutions that Mm-hmm. that you're writing it sort of scores it and it calls it out um so there's like a lot of different things that you can do to to solve for some of that as a place to start um and like i said earlier it is a foundational thing that starts at the top and just because yep. there's one person i was on a panel recently with modern sales pros and one of the panelists and i talked after the fact and did a a post-mortem and we were talking about the fact that where they work, it's a big topic and it's where they're investing to sponsor things and be involved and all the, all the fun stuff. But ultimately it's beyond that individual of what they control and it's decisions that other people need to make. And I said, well, are they making them and are they bought into that? And it's a mixed bag. And so until there's that alignment and then there's thoughtful action taken beyond I'll throw some dollars to it to sponsor something to say we have a commitment to diversity. There's a big difference with that. Yep, absolutely. All right, Amy, we could go on on this, but unfortunately, we're out of time. So, if um, people want to learn more about what you're doing and connect with you, how can they do that? So, AvenueTalentPartners.com is where all the things that I'm featured in and the blog and how to get in touch with us. But for me personally. It's uh, LinkedIn. I live out loud there daily. And uh, I think I'm the only Amy Volus on LinkedIn the last time I checked. So either AvenueTalentPartners.com or LinkedIn is a great place to find me and it's easy to connect there. Perfect. Well, I encourage people to connect with you and follow what you're doing on LinkedIn. It's always uh, good stuff. Thank you. And uh, we'll look forward to talking in shortly.
Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate the invite to talk shop. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, uh, thank you for taking time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank Amy Volus for sharing her insights with us today. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you could also leave us a rating or a review and let us know how we're doing, well, we'd appreciate that. And you can do that all on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this episode is over. So thank you for your help. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Good selling, everyone.